from Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a priority for businesses who want to retain staff and prevent burnout, this is the source of information for creating sustainable and psychologically healthy workplaces in Canada. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Psych Health and Safety Canada. I'm Kim McDonald, and I'm your host. And today, my special guest is Candice Platter. And she is a clinical, um, registered clinical therapist, counselor. She has an incredible uh, story to share and also her work around addictions and substance use. And she has a TED Talk, uh, TEDx uh, video you can watch. And I'm going to put some of these things in the show notes. And also her, she has books, one of which is I love what we, the topic, Candace, what we know about addiction and what we don't know about addiction, but also uh, your many books. So um, I invite you to share with our guests a little bit about your background and your story and what led you to do this work. Okay. Hi, everyone. It's nice to be here, Kim. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so you'd like to know a little bit about my, yeah, my background? background? Yeah. Okay. I think, you know, what, what I like to say is that the relevant part of my story started in uh, 1973, so that's 50 years ago, and uh, that's when I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which a lot more people know about now than they did when I was diagnosed with it, because it's kind of the new disease on the block, and the doctors just didn't know what it was. It's an inflammatory bowel disease, and it has symptoms that no one likes to speak about, you know, like food poisoning kind of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been very, very sick with it. I'm a lot better now. I take better care of myself. I know how to do that. But um, I've had uh, many surgeries and just been very sick with it. Um, because the doctors, didn't know what to do for me when I was first diagnosed. In fact, it took them a year to diagnose me with the right disease because they they said I had colitis. They gave me medication for that, which was not helpful. Um, but what they did was they gave me an awful lot of prescriptions and pretty much all of them were addictive medications. Mm-hmm. Addiction was not on the radar back then. They, I don't think they had any idea what they were unleashing upon me. But, uh, you know, they were giving me Valium. They were giving me opioids like codeine and morphine and Oxycontin and whatever I wanted. That went on for about 15 years where I could just go and get these scripts refilled. Nobody asked any questions. I just kept taking them, made me feel better. So I kept taking them, had no idea that I was becoming addicted to them. I was also smoking pot. Um, and becoming addicted to that because, yes, you can become addicted to pot, absolutely. Um, And, uh, you know, if you fast forward 15 years, I was a mess. I was Mm -hmm. a mess. And these, uh, these substances that they were giving me, I find out later, are all depressants in the human system. So, 15 years later, I'm so depressed that I'm suicidal. Mm -hmm. And I really wasn't sure I wanted to live anymore. And I had no idea what was going on. I knew I was sick with Crohn's, but emotionally, I was just, I was, you know, I was working, I was functioning, I was doing all that. I'm not sure how I did it. Um, But I remember a night when I had a bottle of pills in one hand, because I had lots of pills, I had my phone in the other hand to reach out for some help. And I really wasn't sure which one I was going to use. And, you know, obviously I used the phone because I'm still here. I think what I thought to myself was, well, I can always take these pills later, you know. So I called the Vancouver crisis line, I'm in Vancouver. Um, And somebody on the other end of the line basically saved my life. I believe that because he or she, whoever it was, I think it might've been a she, listened to me and respected me and heard my pain and helped me find people who could help me 
And so I voluntarily signed myself into a psych ward for about a month. They took my clothes, you know, <laughs> took my car keys, took my pot away. Um, and I started getting the counseling I needed. And I also met a couple of people there in the psych ward, other patients who were coming down from from drug overdoses and psychosis and that kind of thing. And they were going to Narcotics Anonymous meetings across the street at the nurse's residence every day at noon. So I started going with them and that was the beginning of my recovery. I don't go to them anymore and maybe at some point we'll see today whether we talk about why, but mm -hmm. um, but it, it was such a, a wonderful thing to be able to have at the beginning of my recovery. And uh, I'm now uh, 36 years clean and sober. So wow. one day at a time, just like everybody else does, I'm 36 yes. years clean and sober. Yeah. And your that experience and journey um, to some of the, your things you've written about and some of the things that you've sort of blended into your counseling, is that how, or did you, you know, were you, doing counseling and therapy before that process, Candace, or was that part of the experience that led you to take your master's? Well, that's, that's a really good question. I, I was a teacher. I taught English and drama um, for about 10 years. And I was the teacher that all the kids would come to and talk to the, talk to me about their problems. And the ones I had to kick out of English class were great in drama, you know, was that kind of thing. Um, and then I made the switch into counseling, but I was using at that time, right? Mm -hmm. So I was kind of a hypocrite. I was helping youth who were having problems in their lives, especially with drugs and alcohol. And I would go off to the bar at the end of a shift uh, with my colleagues, smoke a joint in the car, and then go and drink. And then I had a breakdown. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad I did. And, you know, I reached a bottom with all of this. And that was the bottom when I felt like I might not live anymore. Um, so I was counseling, to answer your question, I was counseling before then. I was probably doing a decent job, but I knew inside that I, you know, for me to be doing this job and then still be using and drinking was not a great idea. Um, when I had about three years clean and sober, I couldn't really work for the first three years because I really needed to heal in a number of ways. Um, that's when I decided that I wanted to be part of the addictions field. I wanted to give back what I had been given. Um, and I've never looked back. My focus has changed in during that time. I worked for 16 years in Vancouver's downtown east side which is the lowest income area uh, in Canada. And it's where the majority of addicts and alcoholics and people with mental health and homeless congregate. Most people have heard of the downtown east side. It's mm -hmm. where a lot of the overdoses are happening now um, and have been for years, unfortunately. So I worked for 16 years there as a, uh, as a counselor working with addicts and alcoholics and loved it. And then what happened was their families started to contact me. I didn't go looking for their families. They came to me. I don't know why, but they did. And they said, ah, we don't know what to do. We love them. We hate them. We don't know what to do with them. We're at our, our wits end with them. And I had no idea what to say to them. So what I said was, come on in let's have a session. And I started to hear what a lot of these families were doing with their addicts. I started seeing the patterns of enabling. I started seeing the wrong things that they were doing because they loved these addicts so much and, they, and nobody was telling them what they should be doing instead. Hmm. There's so much help out there for addicts. There's you know, there's detoxes and rehabs and counseling and self-help groups and just all kinds of stuff. There's so little help for the families who are suffering and struggling right along with them. And so in today's day and age, terrified 
that they're going to die out there. Mm-hmm. And they could. And they are. That's a really so, interesting part, which is the, the support group of someone who is struggling with addiction. Like the ex- yeah. external to them, that component, which is probably a really good segue into as you know, and our listeners know, this is a podcast around psychological health and safety in the workplace yeah, and about what workplaces are doing to support uh, mental health and well-being and some of the risks and harms. But what does psychological health and safety mean to you from your perspective? It means that we have to get underneath the addiction. If there's somebody in your workplace that's addicted or having trouble, maybe problem drinking, problem using, that will develop into full-blown addiction at some point because addiction is progressive. So it might start out, you know, using cocaine on the weekends at parties, but it's going to get worse. It's going to get more. What it means to me is that we have to get underneath the symptom that addiction actually is. What's happening for these people isn't really about the addiction. I mean, it is about the addiction, of course, because they're using and drinking the addiction or gambling the addiction or whatever they're doing. But underneath that, we have to find out why they're doing that. What is it that makes them feel like they have to sabotage themselves and screw up their lives and hurt the people around them as well as themselves? And sometimes people at work and sometimes do shoddy jobs and sometimes do shoddy jobs in in something like construction, where if you do something wrong in building a building, it can collapse on people. Mm. You know, so there's there's a lot of things going on here. But the most important thing for for safety is to be able to get underneath and find out what's really going on for that person. Hopefully, before they overdose in front of you. So I think more counseling needs to happen. I think that needs to be available to people, um, skilled, ongoing counseling that, um, you know, and I think it also needs to be given to people who are the loved ones of people with addiction because they're lying awake at three o'clock in the morning, hoping that phone call doesn't come. They're terrified and they're Mm. taking all of that with them and the sleeplessness with them and probably a diet that's not good for them and that kind of thing into the workplace so it's so multi-layered yeah it is uh it reminds me uh in one of previous podcasts uh, having a conversation around some of the the deaths by suicide in canada and the deaths are a particular number, but the the suffering and the extended impact is so much greater than, and it's not to take away from the individuals, whether it is no, that extreme but, loss of life or some, the individual suffering, but that extended uh, in the numbers. If we look at some of the statistics, I looked, I had a chance to take a look at some of the substance use uh, numbers in workplaces in Canada um, before we chatted, yeah. and the numbers are staggering, just staggering. for that individual, and certainly for some, as you say, some particular industries. There are all kinds of factors that are, you know, that are some of the reasons for that, like construction and others. But that extended uh, level yeah. of suffering well, if, is the... if you think about it for every one person that has an addiction and by the way i use the word addict um not disrespectfully some people think it's a disrespectful term now i'm an addict i don't mean any disrespect by it mm-hmm. at all um but if you think about for every one addict there are like 10 15 20 people surrounding them minimum You've got mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and grandparents and neighbors. And, uh, you know, it's on and on and on and on. The people that are affected by one person's addiction. And co-workers. Co-workers. Yes. The number that I had um, looked at that was the 40 40 billion plus number in the cost to the people of Canada for substance use. 
uh, and that I think it's like 22 billion is around the productivity number. So you know the impact in the workplace is yeah is staggering, um, and what that can look like for coworkers as well. So um, what do you think we that workplaces don't know about addiction, or what are some of the myths that Maybe that we've built these beliefs, you know, beliefs about it before, and we haven't really looked at them too much. Uh, and, you know, and it, I guess it applies to workplace managers as well as all of us who, yeah. uh, you know, are working with um, in workplaces that have or in situations and communities that are working with people that, you know, it's virtually everywhere. You know, in, you know, a work group or, you know, an organization, whether it's at work or in the community or a family, a friend group, that based yeah. on those numbers, there's likely uh, someone who, you know, is experiencing some challenges around that. So what do we, yeah. what do we know? What don't we know? And what are the myths that um, we need to break? Yeah, I, I think the first thing that, that people need to understand I know that this is um, a little bit, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it's, it's something that, that people don't like to think about, but it's true. Um, I'm not thinking of the word that I want right now. Okay. I don't believe that addiction is a disease. This 12-step model which has been the only game in town for a really long time. There are mm -hmm. other places now, but they believe that addiction is a disease. They believe that we are powerless over this disease and that it will be with us for life and that relapse is a natural, normal part of recovery. I don't believe any of those things. I have a disease. I know what it's like to have a medical disease that I can't get rid of. There's no cure for Crohn's. But there is a there is a cure for addiction. It's really very simple. It's not always easy, but it's very simple. And it goes like this. Stop using the addiction. Hmm. And do the work that it takes inside to be able to get past it. I'm living proof of this. And millions of other people who are in recovery are making the choice every day to be in recovery. So people are not powerless over this addiction that they might be bringing to work or that they're, that's in their family, oh. that's affecting their family. Um, so that is so. A, so what do, what would you characterize it as? If, a choice. I, think I like that around the choice. Okay. It's a choice. It's a choice. Even if you believe that it's a disease, even if you believe that, I mean, there is brain involvement in addiction. There's brain involvement in everything that we do. If I move my finger up and down, I'm using my brain to do that. You know, that doesn't mean that it's a disease and it doesn't mean we're powerless over it. We are not. And when we tell an addict that we're powerless, that they're powerless over their disease, when we tell a family member that they're powerless, that their addict is powerless over their disease, it's the most disempowering thing you can do. Hmm. It, it, it's false anyway. Even if you think it's a disease, you st there are people in recovery with years and years of every day making the choice to not pick up. Hmm. It's just that simple really. It's, it's not easy because we used addiction for all kinds of things and we need to get underneath that. It's not really about the addiction, like I was saying before, but it's a choice to learn about ourselves and make things better and be uncomfortable, learn how to be uncomfortable. And what, what families and workplaces don't understand is that when they enable an addict, they're basically helping the addict stay stuck in the addiction. So we, what you know, there's a movie that, um, I don't know if I talked to you about this before in one of our conversations, but there's a movie that Jim Carrey was in. Oh, yes. Um, I don't usually watch Jim Carrey movies. I didn't even <laughs> watch this one, but <clears throat> I watched the trailer and he's all dressed in yellow. He looks like a banana. And, okay. uh, and his tagline is somebody stop me. Mm. 
That's what he keeps saying. Now, addicts are waiting to be stopped. They know they're screwing up their lives really badly. They know all in all kinds of ways, including in their jobs, that they look around and they see other people who aren't living the same kind of lives that they're living. They know there's something wrong with this picture. They want help. They're terrified of help. They're terrified of not getting help. They're in a really precarious position. And they need people to say to them, look, we love you enough. We care about you enough. You're part of our work family or you're part of our actual family. We love you so much that we are going to stop enabling you to continue your addiction. It means I certain things in a family, at a workplace. It might mean other things. I think you were going to probably ask, how do you stop enabling? What is enabling? Yes, yeah. What, right from a workplace perspective, we do know that you know uh, organizations in Canada. We have you know legislation that supports health and safety, physical, yeah. uh, predominantly on the physical side, and yeah. you know to reduce the harms and risk and manage the risk. And from a psychological <clears throat> health and safety, it's really to reduce the harms that might be occurring inside the organization because of work conditions or other factors that are at play. And right. um, workplace culture is something. And as you were talking about that, we know in certain industries and in my own lived experience in my career, where you know drinking was a normal part of, uh, in some cases, doing business. Uh, things yeah. have changed. Um, yep. And I believe it's still part of it. You know, it's still that socialization part and, you know, to be included sometimes. And this is my, I'm speaking from my own experience. You are participating in things that you may or may not, may or may not be helpful to you personally, whether it's in your work the next day or in your whole life. So um, that workplace culture uh, conditions around that, what would you, what advice would you Give her, I guess, what are the ways in which, first, I guess, we'll start with what are the ways in which sometimes uh, unconsciously in a workplace we might be enabling um, mm -hmm. this to continue? I think not talking about it, hmm. not addressing it, is the biggest part of the enabling. And my understanding, I could be wrong about this. My understanding is that there are some workplaces who have mandates that say, you know, you can't, you can't talk to somebody about addiction. Mm. I hope if that's true, I was told this, if that's true, I hope it changes. I hope it changes like yesterday. If you think somebody has a problem with substances or any other kind of addiction, but especially substances in the workplace, they need to be, that needs to be addressed with that person. If coworkers, <clears throat> if coworkers think that there's a problem with somebody they're working with, they need to feel safe to come to HR or someplace to tell them that without feeling like, oh, I'm just tattling on this person or, you know, I'm going to get this person into trouble. Actually, what you're going to be doing, hopefully, if, if it's structured right, you're going to be helping that person more than you can imagine. And so what a workplace needs to do is look at what's happening for people who are addicted and, and be able to say to them, have some kind of policy available to say to them, we want you to keep working for us, but you cannot come to work loaded. You cannot use or drink on a break or at lunch. You can't go for drinks at lunch. We don't want you to do that. In fact, that could be a policy throughout the whole company that you don't have alcoholic lunches, you know. Um, if, if it happens that there's somebody that's concerned about you or something like that, if we hear that you're having a problem again, if we hear that again, we're going to take some steps. And some of those steps, the one that I would like to see is we know you have a problem. We don't want you to have the problem in the workplace. That's just not okay. And it's not negotiable. So what we're willing to do for you is you go to treatment. 
you go to rehab and you successfully complete rehab. And if you do that, you can come and have your job back. And if the company is able to do this, we'll pay for part or all of your rehab expenses, depending on how long a person has worked there, whatever, you know, um, then you can come back to your job. You will have a job when you get out of rehab. Mm. If you relapse, however, if we've given you this time and this support and, you know, and if you relapse, then you'll be fired. So just so that you know what's going to happen, we really want to support you with this. We will not have it here. We will not have it here. Mm. And we'll help you do what you need to do to be able to live a better life. I would love to see that happen in workplaces. There's also another thing, you know, naloxone is being used in the workplaces mm. now because so many people are using opioids. Doctors are prescribing opioids. Opioids like, as I said before, codeine and morphine and Demerol and Dilaudid and, you know, all of the Oxycontin, all the Oxys. People have pain. I know pain. Crohn's is very painful. I know pain. But there's a way to be able to deal with pain without using opioids. But a lot of people are using a lot of opioids and they come to work with it in their system. And sometimes they overdose on the job. They overdose right in front of their colleagues. It's horrible. Mm. It's horrible for the person that's overdosing. It's horrible for the people who care about that person who are witnessing this. And then somebody at the work site needs to be trained in delivering naloxone to the person. Naloxone is a drug that essentially brings a person back to life if they've overdosed on an opioid. Hi listeners, Jason here. We hope you're enjoying this latest podcast episode. Now, if you're like Joelle, Alicia, and myself and enjoy learning from the best, then the Flourish DX Academy is for you. The Academy includes free e-learning courses on the ISO 45003 standard for psychological health and safety at work and associated topics such as how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and how to create the business case for psych health and safety. All courses feature high-quality videos, downloadable resources, multi-choice questions, and a downloadable training certificate on completion. Take your learning to the next level with all Flourish DX Academy courses included within the Flourish DX mobile app. Select podcast episodes from the Psych Health and Safety podcast and sister podcasts from Canada and the USA are also included. Get started with Flourish DX for free at www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. That's www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Now back to this episode. I did notice when I was... Uh after our initial conversation, I jumped into finding out more about uh, naloxone and um, because we had talked about that and I want to get you to share more about that because the, the information that this is my own little piece of research, Candice, that I was like, <laughs> okay, if I was a workplace leader, there is training, but I did explore some of the training and I uh, explored, um, you know, on the federal website and also on a couple of others. My very first, this is this is not a peer-reviewed published piece of research, but the interesting thing was the similarity of all these pieces of information around how to administer it, what naloxone does, but nothing on what a person is about to experience when they have administered it, and <clears throat> nor yes. anything about what they will see, hear, um, you know, or if they have coworkers that are there, what they would hear and experience. And yeah. I found that a very similar common thing across all of the descriptions of that, this particular drug. And then I looked at some of the numbers of the kits that have been, you know, I guess, deployed, you know, they have them by province, you know, 32,000 kits have been distributed in a province. And this is the number that have been uh, used and that it's the numbers obviously exclusive of uh, first responders and things like that. So obviously yeah. workplaces are a big, you know, I guess a big percentage of all those numbers across the territories and the provinces, but it was absolutely absent of any uh, information to help me 
have a trauma-informed sort of understanding of what's about to happen. Because when you said it brings someone back to life. Yes. So in essence, they are not alive. They are. Pretty much. This is a very dramatic. That must be a dramatic experience in a workplace to administer it and then have that experience happen. So maybe you could share a little bit more for our listeners around that. Yeah, Um, I'd be happy to. It's not always pleasant. Um, First of all, you know, whoever's going to administer the naloxone needs to be like close because there's only a a little window of opportunity to be able to get that person what they need in time. Um, So it can't be off-site. Like, let's say, no, for example, if no, you have a big have work somebody, site. Yeah, you can't call can't somebody be. and say, come over, somebody's overdosed. That, that person's gone by then. Oh, goodness. Yeah. I, did, so, I had no idea about that component of that timing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so it's been said, it's been suggested that people who are the deliverers, the administers of naloxone use PPE, that's personal protective gear, Um, because when a person comes back to life, as it were, um, they don't know what they're doing and, and they can, they can hit you. They can punch you. They can kick you. They can throw up on you. And you're as the administer of this, I mean, bless your heart, the people who want to be trained in this, I'm so grateful for you but you need to know what you're getting into. And Mm. the people who are witnessing this, it's just a horrible thing to watch. What happens in the downtown east side in Vancouver often is that the the EMTs will come and they will administer naloxone. The person comes back to life and then gets up, walks away, often goes back into the alley and uses again. Mm. So it's over and over and over and over and over. And what I would like to see happen in a workplace is that naloxone is administered to one person once, just once. Mm. If it's been administered to a person, they get the same kind of um, guidance that I was talking about before. We've had to do this for you. We care about you. We want you to be able to work here, but not like this. And we need you to go to rehab. Your job will be waiting when you come back as long as you finish, successfully finish the program. But if you overdose again in the workplace, this will not happen. This will not continue to happen. Because if, if, if an addict knows that they can, they can just overdose at work and no problem, somebody's going to come and get them back to life. When somebody's enabled... They have no incentive to do anything different. They have no incentive to recover. They have no incentive to stop using. This is why families need to stop enabling in the ways that they are, and workplaces need to stop enabling in the ways they are, and governments need to stop enabling in the ways they are, and pharmaceutical companies need to, et cetera, et cetera. it's many layered and, and there's money in it somewhere for somebody. And this is why this overdose crisis has continued for so many years. Mm-hmm. Because even with harm reduction practices, that's enabling. Harm reduction leads people back into addiction. It's not because addiction is progressive. So you're going to use more and then you're going to use some more because that amount doesn't quite cut it for you anymore. So you have to use some more and off you go again. So governments like governments mm -hmm. like to put their money in harm reduction um, procedures and policies. And it's obviously clearly not working. This has gone on for so many years, too many years. Mm. And families are losing their loved ones. I think fentanyl is here. Yeah, the number, the the Canadian number of lives lost to substance use in Canada in 2022, 74,000 people. Yes, almost 75,000. That's That's right. Yeah, and that's probably 
And we um, know from a lot of these numbers are lower than like than than sometimes they are just in, in a similar way that we think about mental health numbers, you know, yeah. that and we know that sometimes the thing about it is we need down. to have a safe safe supply of drugs. We need to be able to give people that and then put them in treatment. We need to keep them alive and get them help. Mm. We need to get them help because otherwise it, it's going to be 150,000 people. It's going to double mm. and it's just going to go on and on and on. I'm sorry what I interrupted you. you. No, that's a, no problem. What are do you think are some of the critical success factors for a workplace? And you had mentioned policy obviously and from a psychological health and safety policy is a piece of you know it's not going to eliminate the risk of harms and um and keep everyone you know eliminate the safety uh you know problem but it is going to be helpful um and it is a part in the hierarchy of controls one of the the protections and uh you know for prevention and protection what are some of the other things that workplace leaders or supervisors need to know about um, either um, what they're dealing with or about addiction or um, what at an organizational level they could do? Well, I think even though I don't believe that it's a disease and that it's a choice, people in organizations, leaders need to understand that addicts or people who are misusing substances are doing it because they're in pain. It could mm -hmm. be physical pain and it definitely is psychological pain. You know, nobody does this kind of thing if they're living a life you love. You know, I'm, I've got a, a mug, my favorite mug, live a life you love. Oh, I love that mug. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> mug. It is a great um, mug. But nobody, nobody does that kind of number on themselves. Nobody sabotages themselves like that if they like themselves, if they feel good about themselves. So there's pain going on. And I think leaders need to really have some compassion about that, but not so much compassion that they allow it to continue because it needs to be stopped. Addicts need their addiction to be stopped. They need, we need to be able to say to them, we love you so much that we're no longer going to help you do this. We're not going to help you do this anymore. That's one of the best reframings of, uh, you know, like that uh, decision that, you know, that we're not going to enable it or we're not going to help you in that way anymore. And, right. um, Let's talk a little bit about boundaries, because I um, this, you know, the idea of all of this and your company name, um, Love With Boundaries, and your book and other things. Um, you know, we do a lot of training ourselves in um, discussion of boundaries from a psychological health and safety perspective mm, and how important it is so that people can, um, you know, have uh, protection in the workplace and also um, have their right to privacy and all those kinds of things. But from your perspective, how do you define boundaries uh, in with regard to this issue? Well, I, I like very simple definitions, but, you know, a boundary is something that um, is no longer negotiable for you. You're not going to put up with anymore it's time has run its course, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I talk a lot about boundaries in my book. Can I just show my book? Oh, yes, quickly? for sure. Okay, so this is one of my books. This is my first one. It's called Loving an Addict, Loving Yourself, the Top 10 Survival Tips for Loving Someone with an Addiction. Um, it's not for the addict. It's for the loved ones, and it's also for people in organizations that are leaders don't give this to an addict because addicts pretty much hate my book. Addicts in Active Addiction, they hate it because I'm talking about boundaries and I'm talking about how to set a boundary and, and what a boundary is and why it's so necessary to do that. We need to love our addicts. We need to, we need to love them and stop judging them and stop thinking, oh, you know, 
they're in pain. It's horrible for them. An, a life of addiction is a horrible life. I know this firsthand. Nobody really, you know, nobody chooses to become an addict. Nobody says to themselves, gee, I think I'll be an addict in this lifetime. That'll be fun. You know, and most people who become addicts, they think to themselves, well, it won't happen to me. It'll happen to the other guy, but it won't happen to me until it does because it's progressive. So we need to care about them. We need to understand that they don't like themselves very much. Yes, they're causing major problems, but we still have to have compassion for them and boundaries of we will not do this with you anymore because it's not good for you and it's not good for us. It's a classic lose-lose. So we will help you. And you're, this is your chance to get help. This is the one and only time we're going to do this for you. We've got families who have spent, you know, they've, they've lost their, their homes. They've lost everything trying to finance an addict's recovery over and over and over. And some of these places are pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and the addicts just kind of come out and maybe they leave for the, the fam, the family pays it the whole amount because that's what's required. And then the addict leaves four days later saying, well, I'm not like these people and they leave or they finish the program. They go back into a family that's been enabling because somebody like me isn't working with them to change what they're doing. And the addict relapses, you know, so I, I see a really good combination of, you know, sort of a, a set of things for, to protect other coworkers from some of the, you know, the impacts of the behavior at work. Yeah. Um, certainly if I could see that if someone shows up and they're not able to do all the things that they need to do and, um, you know, the burden of the work may fall to other, you know, it wouldn't be surprising that the burden of work would fall to their exactly. colleagues or their coworkers. Yep. Um, which creates the, terrible stress in a workplace for that yes, to happen. Right? Yeah, that yeah. added stress of the workload and the shifting and uncertainty that would happen about, you know, mm -hmm. doing my job and I'm doing someone else's job. So yep. these are all those, they can be invisible things in the workplace for uh, managers and supervisors can't see everything. Right. However, that uh, knowing that there is um, clarity in policy and in practice and yes. looking at the culture, that sort of the hidden culture within the organization, all of those things are all part of the, you know, having that support and all of those things are part of a psychological health and safety uh, management system. Yeah. The boundaries component, I think, is one of the most interesting because it gives, I think, it helps to reduce some of the complexity for supervisors and managers and what they need to do. Yeah. Um, well, and, you know, that, you know, not feeling, uh, you know, for health oriented and human based, compassionate managers and supervisors who are always the peanut butter in the sandwich, like of yeah. the stressors in the yeah. workplace, yeah. Um, giving some clarity on those kinds of parameters on boundaries that the organization is going to, you know, put in right. place so that and they that's what can my have that clear about. guidance. That's what I teach. Yeah. That's exactly right. Because we have to love, we have to care about addicts, but we need to do it with boundaries. If we don't do it with boundaries, they just keep doing what they're doing, putting mm -hmm. everybody, including themselves at risk. It's a horrible situation. And I think that's what's been going on for way too long at so many different levels. So if the families can be worked with and the workplaces can be worked with, We've got a shot at maybe changing what the government's doing. I think it's an opportunity for workplaces to take a really serious look at their policies and practices through the lens yes. of psychological health and safety. Yes. And, you know, some of those conditions you mentioned, which is the commitment of the of the person who's, you know, with the addiction, their commitment to recovery, that the boundaries yeah. Looking at the culture and policy, I was um, reviewing um, that study from the Canadian Center for Addiction yeah. um, and Substance Use, and that was in 2018. So, if our listeners know of another study that's that's uh, more recent than that, more but recent. that 
particular study was talking about that in Canada, we don't, um, for those workplaces that do have a policy around substance use, and certainly with cannabis uh, legalization, we've had some shift in some of that, whether it's written down in policy or it's a verbal sort of practice, that many of our workplaces the uh, do not have robust policy and in Canada to shape some of that. So there's obviously opportunity like to firm up those boundaries in, you know, to show and guide workplaces. So that study was pretty revealing, I think, in where we are. But, you know, it's not uncommon either that the larger organizations have those things and that the smaller organizations in Canada don't necessarily have them as robustly. Yeah. 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 And if I could just say something about pot, you know, because people are still thinking that pot is like really not very harmful. Mm. Pot is harmful and pot, you know, pot is worse for the lungs than cigarette smoke, which has a gazillion different additives, you know, like arsenic. (laughs) And it's worse than that. And it's stored in the fat cells. So it stays in the body for a long time. And now pot, it's not the same pot that I used to smoke way back in the day. It's just not the same. It's way worse, way more addictive, and it's being cut with things like fentanyl. Mm -hmm. This is what a lot of families are really concerned about because their addicts are smoking pot. And they know, you know, a lot of these families have the understanding now that fentanyl, if, if, if their child takes one toke of a marijuana cigarette with fentanyl in it, they're gone. Mm. They're gone. It's the scariest. Of, well, it's one of the many scary. And so in the same and... way that, that, that organizations need to talk to their addicts and be aware of these kinds of things, maybe talk to everybody about this. Um, families need to be able to talk to their children, younger children, who because they're starting to smoke now 10 years old. You know, really? Oh, my goodness. Like, okay. you know, it's scary for families to talk to their children because it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. Kind of like sex, you know, sex mm-hmm. and drugs and rock and roll. Right. But you have to do that. And it's the same in the workplace. Like there could be a program where everybody learns the same information about addiction, because in every workplace, There's not just addicts, there are loved ones of addicts who maybe might not have the information that they need to have to bring back to their family, you know. Mm. And then when addiction is presented to HR, to the leaders, somebody tells them, a coworker tells them, or they overdose or something, that's when the boundary is set for that one person. And you say, look, you know, we care about you enough that we're not going to do this with you and we're giving you some alternatives once. This is your mm. chance. Because if this they're doing is... this in the workplace, they've probably been doing it for years and years and years and years. They mm. just got caught this time. That conversation, it's, you know, that the courageous conversation around making this a natural part of the conversation, you know, of, of yeah. the workplace and the health and safety in the workplace. You know, we know that, it is a part of the conversation, but maybe the volume and the frequency and the um, the naturalness in which we talk about it uh, is a part of the solution because of the, yeah. you know, if you have a culture that does encourage drinking, and I'm just using uh, alcohol as an example, um, you know, after work as part of socialization, yep. then yep. Um, how that is sort of like the complexity of that and then trying to do these other things they're basically at loggerheads so you have to be looking at more than one factor risk factor inside the organization yeah and And that conversation is a part of it because it's you know you can't avoid it though it probably feels uncomfortable for workplace supervisors and looking at their own legal you know sort of limitations on what they can and can't talk about and that probably needs to change as well. The legalities of this probably need mm. to change as well. It's time it did. Um, but, you know, I can, I can train people 
to learn how to set boundaries with other people mm. in a way that's, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's simple and it's clean and it's clear. And once you know how to do it, it's a fairly, well, it's easier than if you don't know how to do it. Mm. So well, I love that because explicit <laughs> communication and sometimes people do need um you know, all of those layers, but they also need the words. Like, how right. do I start that conversation? It's right. And that's to... what we do at Love With Boundaries is we help families learn how to language a boundary. And mm. that that needs to be done in organizations as well. How do you language this boundary? How do you approach this person? Yeah. I love that. We have talked, there's so many more pieces to this topic, Candice. Yeah. Um, but as we wrap up, how um, are are there some other things you'd like to advice you'd like to give to uh, workplaces and leaders? Um, you've you've offered a lot, but if there's some top things that you want to leave with them, um, yeah. To, yeah, it's it's okay to be nervous about this. It's okay to be scared about this. You need to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a saying that it doesn't take courage to do the easy stuff in life. <laughs> it takes courage to do the hard stuff. Mm. And this is hard stuff that needs to get done. And if you know how to do it, it's easier. It's a lot easier. And if you know what the boundaries are, what's negotiable, what's not negotiable, it's even easier. So um, if, you're, you know, if you're listening to this and you're feeling some anxiety about it, we can help you. At Love With Boundaries, we can help you. We work with families. We work with, with workplaces as well. So, um, yeah. So I, I guess the thing, the thing I'd really like to say is don't give up and don't feel like you can't do it because you can. You just need some direction and encouragement, and we will do both of those. Just one last question that prompted uh, there. What helps you stay optimistic? working in this very challenging work? Because I know this can change. I know it can. And sometimes it's hard to stay optimistic when I see all around me, you know, the ways that, that it's all being stymied, you know. But I know it can be changed. I know addiction can stop because I'm living proof. And I know other people who are living proof. And I watch what happens to the families that I work with that get their lives back, the addicts that get their lives back. I know that what I'm doing is helpful. And so I hang on to that. Mm. You had told me and uh, reminded me that September is recovery month. Uh, yes. And is there anything you'd like our listeners to know about that and just share a little bit I about would, that yeah. month? Yeah. Yeah. Recovery month is such an important thing. It, it celebrates people like me and even people with one day, one hour of recovery. It celebrates us because we can do this. Yes, we can. And I remember the first one that I ever went to recovery month is um, there's a recovery day, recovery month. But it's been around for a while now. It's every year. It's annual. So I went to my first one, I think, um, somewhere around 2010. My book had just come out. And there was a sheet of paper where they wanted people not to put their names, because it's all anonymous, but to write down how much clean and sober time they had. So people wrote down one day, one week, a year, three years, whatever. I think I had about 20 something years at that point. So I wrote that down. And at the end of that day, they tallied the numbers. And in just one recovery event, there, there were 16,000 years of recovery. Oh. It was just amazing. We were all blown away. There was 16,000 years at this one event. And we need to celebrate that mm. because you know, life is tough sometimes. And sometimes it's like, well, you know, I could go smoke a joint. No one would know. And then it's going to lead you back to whatever you were doing. And it's easy to think, well, I just need something to take the edge off. 
but let's celebrate recovery and let's celebrate the hard work that it takes to stay in recovery. And let's give what we have away to the people who need it. Mm. So this is what recovery month is all about. And um, what we're trying to do at Love With Boundaries is we're our goal for September and October and November, because there are events happening then too. Um, we want to reach 1,000 families that are dealing with addiction, that don't know that there's another way, that don't know how to come out of their misery. And what we want to do is we want to be able to give a thousand families my book. Oh my, Candace, that's amazing. And so, and so what we're looking for is sponsoring. We're looking for sponsorship and partnering mm -hmm. to be able to help, help us help them because they are struggling and suffering so much and they're everywhere. They're all over the world in the best of families and in rich families and poor families everywhere. It's, there's just no getting around it. Now, if you don't have an addict in your sphere, you know, someone who does. Mm. So, so that's what we're trying to do for recovery month. And we're at love with boundaries. We're all very passionate. They're all as passionate as I am. I'm very passionate. <laughs> I have this wonderful team Fabulous. of counselors and assistants yes. that are all very passionate about this because many of them are in recovery themselves. Mm. They know what's going on here. And it can change. We need to do what we need to do to make a change. Mm. And, you know, the research, yeah, the research also shows that you know, addiction and mental health challenges are also sometimes co-occurring. So they are you know, most of the time they yeah. are. And, and, you know, what happens is that doctors try to like psychiatrists, for example, <clears throat> they try to, um, to assess and diagnose mental health conditions while addicts are in active addiction, putting poison in their brains. So, they're, they're under the influence and they go to a psychiatrist who, who labels them as bipolar maybe or schizophrenic mm -hmm. maybe, but you can't really give an accurate diagnosis when there are poisonous toxic substances in a person's brain. How can you do that? Mm -hmm. So we need to get those people into recovery as well and then get them assessed. And if they need medication, so be it. Medication is fantastic. Thank God for it, mm -hmm. you know. But to try to do both at the same time is a little crazy. Yeah. I think that's another so, piece of the complexity for workplaces, you know, trying to navigate some yes. of those things. But I think the boundaries question and some of the sort of going deeper into your own policy and then giving some yep. explicit communication and yeah. practices that's the starting and the stigma helping um, people understand what addiction and substance use is and isn't and is, why it exists and why it exists yeah. and what you know it's like who hasn't been in pain and who hasn't who, mm. has, who hasn't drank too much mm. there aren't too many people who haven't drank too much yeah well thank you for yeah. everything this has been eye-opening uh, for me and Thank I appreciate you. all that you've shared and your passion for this topic and igniting the passion in my, in, of the topic in me even more too. Um, if people yeah. want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, they can get in touch with me um, <clears throat> if they go on to lovewithboundaries.com and uh, they can contact me, Candace, C-A-N-D-A-C-E. Ace, not ice, is what I like to say. Okay. Sometimes it's spelled with an I-C-E. And my apologies to anybody whose name is Candace with an I. Um, <laughs> but Candace with an A at lovewithboundaries.com. And if I can help in any way, if I can help organizations, if I can help your family, please let us know. We're, that's what we're here for. Great. Thank you. And thanks to all our listeners for uh, coming back to this episode. We've talked a lot about a whole host of different things around what workplace, what the role and responsibility and what the boundaries could look like in the workplace when you're dealing with these kinds of issues that may or may not be connected with mental health and productivity issues. And you can also reach out to me uh, on LinkedIn and at 13factors.ca. 
always looking for topics, always looking for guests on psychological health and safety and the workplace and culture change um, in Canada. There is, um, there's a great opportunity to do more. It's one of the newest, uh, psycho- or psychological health and safety is the newest area of health and safety in the workplace. And yes. it is definitely evolving and growing. So um, our job is to help educate and raise some of these issues uh, with listeners and help bring some more, uh, I guess, concrete advice as well as uh, spark ideas for conversations in the workplace. And thank you to Flourish DX uh, for being the sponsor of the podcast and bringing this to you. And uh, until next time, thanks for being here. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. To stay up to date with the best content on workplace mental health in North America, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the Flourish DX community at www.flourishdx.com. 